Hi guys, it's Nadia. I just wanted to say two really quick things before we get into today's episode. Firstly, I'm so sorry. I was quite unwell in the lead up to recording this episode, so the start is slightly shaky, but please do try and stick with it. It's a really interesting case with a lot of victims and we do go into lots of detail. Secondly, for those of you who haven't seen, which I think will be a lot of you as we have lots of listeners but not very many social media followers, we've announced a giveaway of one of our Infraction hoodies over on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to find out how you can win one of our hoodies, then please go over to social media and have a look. But for now, let's get into the episode. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 38 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And for our last episode of 2020, I've decided to bring it back to the UK, specifically to Manchester. So Sal and I were having a conversation on one of our recent wind downs on Patreon about murderers um, and murders that have occurred in hospitals. And it got me thinking about this case, so I thought I would do it for this week's episode. And before we begin, I would just like to say that I have changed the name of one of the individuals in this case just to protect the innocent party. So as I said, today we're in Manchester at the Stepping Hill Hospital. This hospital is one of the largest hospitals in Greater Manchester. It has over 5,000 members of staff. The hospital's emergency department alone sees over 7,000 patients each month. If you call an ambulance in the Greater Manchester area, the likelihood that you will be taken to Stepping Hill is incredibly high. It's a huge hospital and it deals with almost all medical emergencies, as well as routine surgeries. 68-year-old Josephine Walsh was one such patient who walked through the doors of Stepping Hill Hospital on the 23rd of June 2011. Josephine had ongoing and continued health issues and had been admitted to Stepping Hill that day because of her chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, also known as COPD. COPD is a long-term condition that causes inflammation in the lungs and damages lung tissue, making it difficult for patients to breathe. There is no cure for COPD, but it can be managed. In hospital, Josephine was admitted to Ward A3 on June 23rd and had been receiving fluids from an IV drip. She had begun to recover well, so much so that the doctor had said that she could be discharged on the 27th of June. On the 27th of June, however, Josephine took a nasty turn. She was sat up in a chair next to her bed when she started sweating uncontrollably. She started to feel faint and shaky. The nurse on the ward told her that it was a very hot day and that she would cool down soon, but Josephine's condition started to get worse. She passed out and a nurse found her unconscious in her chair. When her daughter arrived at the hospital, she described seeing her mother laying in bed grey and unconscious. A nurse gave Josephine some glucose, worried that she may have been suffering a hypoglycemic episode despite there being no notes in Josephine's records that she suffered from hypoglycemia. For those who don't know, hypoglycemia is low blood sugar. The early signs of a hypoglycemic episode can include hunger, sweating and dizziness, but if untreated, a person could lose their vision, be unable to move their limbs and can even fall unconscious or die. Are you spelling that right? Hypoglycemic, yeah, why? I was just wanted to fact check you, see if you got it right. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you can be hyper or hypo. Hypo. Yeah. Well done. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are you Googling this? No. Oh. I just know everything, remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, the nurse who had given Josephine the glucose tested her blood sugar and found it to be incredibly low. The glucose worked and Josephine started to come round. Her daughter gave her a bottle of Lucozade, and after drinking almost the entire bottle in one go, Josephine started to get stronger and she was able to sit up. This was an incredibly strange incident as Josephine Walsh was not a diabetic and there appeared to be no explanation for her hypoglycemic episode. Nevertheless, she was transferred to another ward and made a full recovery and was able to go home. Josephine said that the entire episode was the scariest thing that had ever happened to her. She had felt completely out of control and nothing like that had ever happened to her before. She said, I honestly thought I was on the way out. The hospital staff thought very little of this incident. Josephine had certainly had a strange reaction to something, but she had made a full recovery and it appeared to be an isolated incident. This stayed an isolated incident until the 10th of July 2011, when five male patients on Ward A1 also suffered the same hypoglycemic attacks. One of these men was Philip Jones, a man who had just beaten cancer. 
He had been admitted to the ward overnight to receive antibiotics for an infection happening in his leg. The oral antibiotics he had been prescribed to take at home hadn't been effective. He was taken to ward A1 and was set to stay overnight to receive IV antibiotics. His first IV bag was finished and a nurse came in to change the bag. The nurse said that Philip's cannula had some blood in it and needed to be washed out. As soon as his cannula was washed out, Philip started to get a bit sweaty and he felt a bit faint. He pushed himself up off the bed to go to the sink and wash his face, but he didn't make it. He collapsed on the floor and started having trouble breathing. Another nurse rushed in and looked at his medical charts. Philip was diabetic, but he usually controlled his sugar levels with diet rather than medication. The nurse, having seen this on his chart, thought that maybe he was having a hypoglycemic episode and gave him a packet of glucose to ingest. The glucose seemed to bring Philip around a little bit and he began to regain consciousness, although he had trouble answering the doctor's questions. He said that he could understand what the doctors were saying, but that he just couldn't answer the questions properly. The wrong words just kept coming out of his mouth. After several hours, Philip began to recover, and within a few days he was back to normal. Philip said that the entire ordeal had left him incredibly frightened and he had really felt like he was going to die. Mm. At first, this incident didn't raise any alarm bells because Philip was diabetic and therefore they could attribute his hypoglycemic episode to his body reacting strangely to his antibiotics and inducing the episode. However, several hours later, someone else on that same ward, Ward A1, suffered a hypoglycemic attack. This man was 41-year-old Grant Mizell. Grant had been admitted to the ward for routine observation as he had accidentally overdosed on some medication he had been prescribed. Luckily, Grant was not suffering any sort of reaction, but in order to be on the safe side, he had been admitted overnight so that the nurses would be able to keep an eye on him in case something changed. The night went without any incident. Grant slept most of it. However, early in the morning when a HCA checked on him, she noticed that Grant appeared to be having a seizure. The HCA called a nurse and they took a blood sample from him. This test showed that Grant's blood sugar levels were incredibly low. Due to Grant's worsening condition, he was put into intensive care. That night, three other men on Ward A1 had also suffered random hypoglycemic attacks. All five men were in hospital for totally different reasons and had been given different types of medication. One nurse on the ward, however, reported this to her manager. She stated what had happened and suggested that these incidences, although seemingly random, may have been linked. This is really strange, though, isn't it? Because I'm obviously thinking, okay, you've got a doctor or a nurse on the ward who's doing this, but it's quite strange to have one event, then like a gap, and then suddenly loads in a night, mm-hmm. which makes me think it's it's further removed from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, yeah, is it something standard in like a standard drug that's been contaminated? <laughs> well, that leads me really nicely onto what I'm about to say next. <laughs> <laughs> Because the following evening on July 11th, 2011, a nurse on Ward A1 was hooking up an intravenous saline bag when she noticed that the saline solution inside the bag looked foamy. She unhooked the bag and went back to the storeroom to check the other saline bags and ampules. When checking the drawer, she noticed that some of the other saline bags and ampules were leaking. All of these were checked and in total, 45 had been punctured and, reports vary, but between 19 and 36 ampules had been contaminated. This was particularly scary given that these had all been placed in the treatment room ready to be administered into patients. The hospital wondered if this was a manufacturing issue or whether someone had intentionally poisoned the saline with something. Other hospitals in the local area were phoned, and soon almost every hospital in England that was using that manufacturer was checking their stock too to see if their products had been contaminated. At Stepping Hill, the medical board made the decision to remove all stock from the hospital and totally replace it. They then created and enforced new safety procedures. All stock was to be kept in a locked room, and the hospital had introduced a signing-out process where two nurses would have to check and sign out each medication from the treatment room every time they went to get something. Blimey. Nurses were put into pairs on each shift, and they had to work together in order to stop any potential rogue nurses. A sample of the contaminated saline was sent to the Northwest Quality Control Headquarters for testing to see what had been injected into the saline. The test results came back and confirmed what doctors had suspected – the bags had been injected with insulin. I knew it. Did you? (laughs) 
So if a body has too much insulin, the excess insulin in the bloodstream can cause the cells in your body to absorb too much glucose from your blood. This causes the liver to release less glucose and this, combined with the body absorbing too much glucose from the blood, creates dangerously low glucose levels in the blood. And this is why people say low blood sugar. Having dangerously low blood sugar can cause hypoglycemic attacks. And of course, that was exactly what was happening to the patients at Stepping Hill. This insulin had been manually inserted into the saline bags. Someone had actively and intentionally put it there. Therefore, this turned into a criminal matter and was handed over to the police. I presume, and this was isolated to Stepping Hill, like, I'm guessing none of the other hospitals found this issue, or did they? No, this didn't happen to any of the other hospitals. It was just isolated to Stepping Hill, yeah. So the initial investigation carried out by the police revealed that at least 20 patients over three wards had been poisoned, and unfortunately, four of those patients had died. The first patient to pass away was 44-year-old grandmother, Tracy Arden. Tracy had been battling multiple sclerosis for over 12 years, and she had been diagnosed with MS when she had been just 32 years old. Due to her MS, Tracy had to spend a lot of time in and out of hospital, but often her recovery was quick and she'd be discharged within a few days. On the 6th of July, Tracy was admitted to Stepping Hill. She had a high temperature and it was suspected that she was suffering from some sort of mild infection. She was admitted to Stepping Hill for observations and to have some antibiotics. In the afternoon, Tracy's parents, who lived close to the hospital, visited her and commented that she was in high spirits. The colour was coming back into her cheeks and she was responding to the treatment she was having. Her family left at 4pm, but less than two hours later they received a phone call from the hospital saying that Tracy's condition had taken a turn for the worst. Her breathing had become incredibly laboured and she was taking, on average, only one breath per minute. That's awful. A horrible, horrible way to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Because of Tracy's breathing, um, unfortunately, she suffered fatal brain damage as a result of the lack of oxygen to her brain. And sadly, Tracy did pass away. At first, this wasn't connected to the other string of random illnesses that had occurred at the hospital. But this soon changed when another patient died just four days later. And his name was Arnold Lancaster. 71-year-old Arnold Lancaster had been admitted to Stepping Hill Hospital on the 10th of July. There's very little information about Arnold out there as his family haven't spoken to the media, so I will respect their privacy and not go into too much detail about him, but he passed away the day after he was admitted to Stepping Hill. His blood work showed that, just like the other patients, his blood sugar levels had been incredibly low and this was seemingly unrelated to any condition he suffered or any medication he had been given. On July 21st, 2011, 83-year-old Derek Weaver passed away. He had been admitted to Stepping Hill 11 days earlier, on the 10th of July. Like Josephine Walsh, Derek was suffering from COPD, although his health was worse than Josephine's, and when he was admitted to hospital, he was in a very confused state. In the early hours of July 11th, Derek was found by a nurse to be very grey and unwell. A blood test showed that he had, quote, grossly unnatural levels of insulin and disastrously low blood glucose levels. His sister was called to the hospital to see him, and when she arrived, he was convulsing violently, sweating uncontrollably, and appeared to be in complete agony. Unfortunately, after 10 days in a coma, Derek Weaver passed away. Although Derek Weaver had entered the hospital in a very critical condition, the levels of insulin in his blood had caused dangerously low blood glucose levels, and that had put Derek Weaver into a hypoglycemic episode. The hypoglycemia caused Derek to lose consciousness, which in turn stopped him from being able to cough or take deep breaths in order to clear his lungs. This resulted in the infection that was already in his lungs from his pre-existing COPD condition to worsen and in turn contributed to his passing. There were two other unexplained deaths that occurred during this weekend at Stepping Hill. These were of 84-year-old Vera Pearson and 84-year-old George Keep. Initially, their deaths were included in the investigation. However, further autopsy results concluded that their deaths had not been as a result of hyperglycemia or other possible related medical tampering. The Greater Manchester Police investigated this as a murder investigation from the outset. The detectives had an incredibly difficult time trying to narrow down which member of staff had access to the treatment room and the patients in question. There were over 700 members of staff in the hospital at any one time, and of course, there were visitors and patients constantly coming and going. 
The family of Tracy Arden had to postpone their funeral for her due to the need for further autopsies and medical reports in connection with the police investigation, and this was very traumatic for them. Because the detectives didn't know if this was an isolated incident involving one batch of poisoned saline, or whether the attacker was still intending to harm patients, the hospital made the decision to discharge as many patients as possible and to turn away all non-emergency patients. God, this is... yeah... You don't even think, do you, the steps you'd have to take if you had no idea how many of these contaminated bags were out there? Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing. And essentially, the police are trying to investigate in a working crime scene because at this point, you know, they can't shut down the hospital. They've got way too many very sick patients in there. Um, The surrounding hospitals in Manchester were then getting inundated with all the emergency patients Um, and you think in any one night how many ambulances are called and that kind of thing if you then have a hospital where you can't send people to it's going to massively impact the other hospitals in the area and impact patients it was just it was probably the most disastrous thing that they could have done was to shut down the hospital they just had no choice Um, so yeah the police were really left with no option but to undertake their investigations in a working crime scene yeah And of course, as I'm sure you can imagine, the media got hold of this story and instantly jumped on it. At a police press conference, one of the investigators had to admit to the whole country that the individual who did this was still working on the ward. Then, just over a month into the investigation, the police made an arrest. The police arrested 27-year-old female nurse Rachel Langley and questioned her for three days. She denied everything and said it hadn't been her. She denied her right to have a solicitor present for the interview, saying that she had nothing to hide and didn't need legal representation. After the first couple of days, Rachel began to feel incredibly scared. She begged the police to look for the real culprit, telling them that it hadn't been her. The police didn't believe her. They said to her that she had a motive and she had means. What was her motive? Um, so the police had found out that Rachel had recently been passed over for a promotion um, and they said that this had caused her to rebel against the hospital that had stopped her from progressing in her career. Um, they kind of added to this by saying that they'd searched her home and um, they'd found a box of medication that she'd stolen from the hospital. And they also said that she um, was working on the ward at the time, that at least one of the patients had suffered insulin poisoning. So in their view, that was kind of her motive. And the means was that she was there when one of the patients was poisoned. Right, I see. And I mean, it doesn't look great that she's stolen some medication either, does it? No, it doesn't. And I can't find what medication that was. So in some reports, this is ibuprofen, which I don't think is that bad. I mean, obviously, we don't work in hospitals, so we don't really know. But I mean, when I did work at a hospital, I would take paracetamol or ibuprofen if I had a headache. But uh, other reports said that it was tramadol. So if that is that, then that's obviously a very serious painkiller. So do you know what I mean? I, I don't really know. But yeah, it doesn't look good. I, I agree with that. Mm. So the police charged Rachel with three counts of criminal damage with the intent to danger life and for the theft of the medication. She was refused bail and she was sent to Style Women's Prison in Cheshire for six weeks. The media went absolutely crazy with the story and dubbed Rachel the Angel of Death. They found photos of Rachel from nights out and plastered images all over their front pages of her in heels and drinking. They hounded her family in every newspaper and every news channel reported on Rachel's case for over a month. Inside Styles Women Prison, Rachel had to be taught by the prison officers how to change her body language to look less vulnerable, and they changed her name in the prison to minimise the risk of her being a target. One day, an inmate walked into Rachel's cell and sat down next to her and said, That nurse is in here. I can't wait to see her. It's disgusting what she's done and I'm going to let her know. Rachel was petrified, and understandably so, because Rachel was innocent. God, they surely should have had her in like some kind of seg. I know. Yeah. What they they changed her name to like a nickname of her name and that was it. I think maybe dyed her hair. But yeah, it's absolutely terrifying, right. absolutely terrifying. Yeah, you can't imagine how that must feel. I mean, guilty or innocent actually going in and knowing like you're already notorious and a target. would be quite Yeah, yeah, and a target. That would be God, I can't even imagine the oh. It's terrifying. So, after spending six weeks in a women's prison, all charges against Rachel were dropped and she was released from custody. As I'm sure you can imagine, her life didn't go back to normal. Everyone had seen photos of her, she was constantly stopped on the streets, she was sacked by the Stockport NHS Foundation Trust, despite her charges being dropped. 
Rachel put on lots of weight and dyed her hair, but still, people recognised her. People would see her and call out her name in the streets and point and say, that's that nurse. In an interview, she said that she hates her name and has considered changing it by deed poll because hearing it shouted at her just reminds her of all the awful things people think she has done, and that's why I've changed her name for this episode. I have to say, it's unclear why the police dropped their charges. As you can imagine, the police and the hospital are not particularly open about Rachel's arrest and subsequent release because they know they royally messed this up and ruined this poor girl's life. Some sources suggest that maybe they had a star witness who was going to come forward and testify that they'd seen Rachel doing something, but then they'd gone back on their word. And I don't really know how true that is, but it's the only slightly credible thing I've seen that might suggest why they were so certain that it was her. And then they changed their mind kind of without the introduction of any new evidence. Mm. Yeah, it's quite odd. And that's it. Like there, And there is really no new evidence. Basically, the attacks, they they seemingly had stopped and the hospital began to go back to normal. Um, And the whole ordeal was kind of more or less brushed under the carpet whilst the police kind of quietly investigated it behind closed doors and in the background. Did they keep in place all the procedures that they put in originally, like the two nurses, the sign-out systems and things? Because it does seem odd that they would just drop it. But like you said, it's a working hospital. There's not a lot they can do. They do need to keep trying to help people. But my God, I'd have cameras everywhere in every one of those medrooms. Yeah, so they did, they did, they kept the procedures in place and they locked down the right. treatment room where the medication was held. And yeah, they had the sign out process, which, so basically in one of the kind of um, interviews that I saw, one of the police officers was sort of like, well, to be honest, like, to be honest with you, when we arrested Rachel, the incidences did stop. But the arrest kind of coincided with the introduction of all these new safety measures. So you know, the incidences, I understand where the police are coming from, but to to me, obviously, like, and I guess it's the, the beauty of hindsight, really, isn't it? But obviously, the incidences stopped because they couldn't, there was no way that anyone could inject anything into a saline bag because they weren't allowed in the treatment room by themselves. Well, and also, if you were the real person doing this, you would have probably thought, fuck, I'm about to get caught here. They've realised, you know, they've made the link between all of these deaths. I don't think it's, like, implausible that you'd think, oh, my God, someone else has been arrested for this. This is great. I'm going to, you know, take a bloody step back for a minute. Mm -hmm. Because sounds to me like whoever was doing it, you know, if they did the one that was aged ago, then they've done this huge batch of them. Obviously, maybe got a bit ahead of themselves or they've been getting away with it, got a bit out of control. Mm -hmm. And this could have been like a bit of a wake-up call. Actually, people have noticed, like you say, suddenly loads of protocols in place. It's, as a criminal, your perfect situation, isn't it? Someone else going down for your crime. Mm -hmm. So maybe you sort of would just stop for a bit and think, oh, you know, I'll start up again very slowly in a few months, Mm -hmm. which alas, is what it sounds like has happened. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So six months after the last attack, on the 3rd of January 2012, another incident happened on War Day 3 at the Stepping Hill Hospital. A nurse noticed that a prescription had been manually changed on a patient's prescription chart. These prescription charts are usually placed at the end of a patient's bed, and they are used by doctors to prescribe a certain amount of medication and to detail how often a medicine, and what dose, should be given. A nurse noticed that on one of her patient's charts, it appeared that a doctor had written that 80 milligrams of prednisolone should be administered. This was a dosage that was far too high for a steroid injection like this. This nurse flagged it to her nurse manager, and it was soon revealed that another nurse had seen the same thing on one of her charts. In that instance, a dose for seven times the amount of nitroglycerine had been written down to be administered onto her patient. Nitroglycerine is a beta blocker used to help patients suffering heart problems. The medicine widens the blood vessels to the heart to increase and help blood flow. A dosage of seven times the recommended amount would likely have killed that patient had it not been spotted. An investigation was undertaken and more altered prescription charts were found. It appeared that someone had been amending the original dosages by hand. For example, where one chart said 30 milligrams, someone had changed the 3 into an 8 so that the new dosage rate read 8 milligrams. God, that's so terrifying. It is, yeah. And it was unclear to the doctors which medication had been blindly administered by the nurses and whether any patients had suffered any side effects to potentially having been given an overdose of their medication. Once again, the hospital went into panic mode. It was unclear if this was the work of the original saline poisoner or whether this was someone else entirely. The MO was different, but the outcome would have been the same. A lot of very ill patients and potentially some deaths too. Same, surely. Yeah. 
So this time it was easier to narrow down the pool of suspects. In the instance with the insulin contamination in the saline, it was unclear at what time that insulin had been injected into the ampules. But this time there was a clear window of when the prescriptions were written and when someone would have been able to alter them. The detectives narrowed down their list and they found one nurse who had been working on the wards around the same time of the poisoning incidents and at the time that the prescription charts had been altered. This man was 46-year-old Filipino nurse Victorino Chua and in January 2012 he was arrested on suspicion of tampering with medical records. At first the police had very little evidence on Chua and they knew that they had to get it right this time after their initial failure when they'd arrested and charged Rachel. The police didn't have enough evidence to charge Chua with the murders, and so they released him on bail whilst they broadened their investigation. Probably because of what happened with Rachel, the media weren't quite as quick to jump on this arrest, and so less of a show was made about it. However, one journalist decided that he would fly to the Philippines to find out what type of nurse Chua had been before he relocated to England with his wife and two children. In Manila, the journalist made an application to the Nursing Regulatory Board to find out if Chua was qualified. He also made an application to the police to see if Chua had a criminal history. He found that Victorino Chua had studied medicine at the Metropolitan Nursing College, but they had been kicked out in his third year for failing almost all of his exams. This journalist was then able to track down a man who falsified certificates and records for individuals to be able to use them to move abroad, usually to the US or the UK. After obtaining his fake qualifications, Chua had come to the UK in 2002 and started working in a nursing home, and then he became a bank nurse for the NHS. In 2009, he got a full-time nursing position at the Stepping Hill Hospital, a position he obtained by showing the nursing and midwifery council a photocopy of his, in inverted commas, medical certificate. After a further two years of collecting evidence... Victorino Chua was finally arrested on the 28th of March 2014 after police obtained a letter that Chua had written about himself in which he confessed to the horrific crimes that he had committed. What? How? Why? Firstly, why? <laughs> and secondly, I can't believe like that was their breakthrough. Like, I'm not discrediting the police because that evidence is evidence, but I just really thought they were going to be able to narrow it down, get some kind of confession or like uh, find some records like out in the Philippines about what he'd done, mm -hmm. but to just find a letter mm -hmm. where he's handwritten and confessed to everything mm. strikes me as just really bizarre. Who like who was he writing to? Well, they he basically they called it like a self confession letter, and in it he like wrote about himself, he wrote about his life, and he wrote about how much he hated England, he hated the hospitals here, he hated working at Stepping Hill. Um, he also wrote about his absolute disgust for all his patients and all the other staff at the hospital. And he even wrote things like, there's a devil in me. I'm an angel turned into an evil person and I have done things that I would take to the grave. And he also referred to himself in this letter as the true angel of death. Mm. Wow. But the police also did have a witness and that was in the form of Philip Jones. So if you can remember back to the start of the episode, Philip had come into hospital for some antibiotics and he had been fine. And then when a nurse had told him that he had some blood in his cannula and it had needed washing out, he had become instantly unwell and faint and that he'd fallen unconscious by his bed. Having seen an image of Victorino Chua on the news, Philip called the police and told them that it was Chua who had been the nurse who had washed out his cannula. The police suspected that Chua had in fact injected insulin straight into Philip Jones on that occasion. Wow. The other illnesses and deaths in the hospital were harder to prove because Chua hadn't always been on the ward at the time that the patients fell ill. This was obviously because he had meticulously injected insulin into bags of saline and then other unsuspecting nurses had been the ones to administer the insulin into their patients. God, how awful would you feel? I know, I know. So, on the 20th of January 2015, Chua's trial began. The evidence in this case was very complicated. There were lots of technical terms and it was a lot for the jury to take in. Expert after expert were called to the stand and each one attempted to undermine and rebut what the other had said. The confession letter from Chua was the prosecution's, quote, smoking gun, but the defence rebutted this. They said that the letter had been written by Chua at a counselling session a year before the incidents at Stepping Hill had even begun. 
The prosecution argued that this so-called defense actually strengthened their argument as it just added to Chua's depraved character and his obsession with killing and being the angel of death. They said that if he had written it a year before, it just proved that he was not safe to practice medicine or be on the streets as his counseling had obviously not helped him and his anger against the public and patients had escalated. Also, I just don't understand what their argument is. Like, he's done a bad thing regardless of whether he's had counselling since then. He's not faced any kind of criminal proceedings. So, like, I'm not saying people can't be rehabilitated, but actually the fact in this case that he's had a counselling session, like, what's their point? Oh, he's not going to do it again. No, um, I agree with what you're saying. But no, the counselling session they're saying happened a year before anything happened. So they're saying he wrote this letter a year before right. this insulin attack had even happened and the charts have been changed and blah, blah, blah. And so he's not confessing to anything. He's just saying that he's got these thoughts in his head. And so the prosecution are like, cool, well, that just adds to our argument that he's a depraved lunatic. Yeah, it just suggests to me a bit of premeditation yeah. and also probably some cases that you never knew about and possibly he's already been doing it. And yeah, just because it's not related to like this set of crimes. Yeah, I don't know, I think a strange argument to make. I agree, it kind of supports the prosecution, if anything. That's actually a really interesting point. Yeah, it could even be in reference to other cases at other hospitals or when he was working as a bank um, nurse for the NHS or even when he was working in the care home before. Yeah, I I hadn't thought about that. That's actually really true. That could just be, yeah, maybe that Stepping Hill isn't where he started it. Mm. So the defence also argued that the hospital were trying to use Chua as a scapegoat for their own bad practices and said that the patients who had died had been elderly and vulnerable and the other patients had gotten sick for different reasons. They said there was nothing to prove that these hypoglycemic episodes had been caused by insulin in the blood. The prosecution rebutted this by bringing out their real smoking gun, the blood sample taken from Grant Mizell. Grant was the patient we spoke about at the start who came into the hospital because he had accidentally overdosed on some prescription medication and needed to be monitored. He had suffered a hypoglycemic episode and had to go into the intensive care unit. Whilst his time on Ward A3, Victorina Chua had been the only nurse to have looked after him. When Chua had taken a blood sample from Grant Mazel at the request of the doctor on the ward, it had shown that his blood glucose levels were dangerously low. As is common practice, Chua then threw this blood sample into the hazardous waste bin, assuming that it would just get destroyed. Unfortunately for Chua, samples from that bin are taken at random and frozen for compliance reasons, and it just so happened that Grant's blood had been one of those samples that had been frozen. Wow. The prosecution ordered this sample to be tested by a lab that specialised in testing blood samples for minute traces of drugs, usually tested for doping in athletes and that sort of thing. And this test result showed that Grant Mazel did have traces of insulin in his blood. This was a slam dunk for the prosecution and totally undermined the defence's argument. And this was not all the prosecution could prove. They stated that what Chua did next undoubtedly contributed to Grant Mazel's horrific injuries. Chua, despite knowing that Grant was having a hyperglycemic episode, not only did nothing to help him, but actively told the nurse on handover that Grant was fine and that he was just sleeping and resting. Grant Mazel was not sleeping, he was in a coma, and he was suffering catastrophic brain damage. Grant did survive this attack, but his life completely changed. He went from being a financial accountant working on multi-million pound transactions to having to quit his job and work part-time in a supermarket whilst his family had to look after him. He said in a statement to the court, In short, the attack has destroyed my life, not only in financial terms, but in the area of self-esteem and self-worth. I now feel completely worthless and can see no way forward to improve this in the future. Oh my God. This is such a dark case, really, isn't it? Because, I don't know, it's just different, isn't it? This this is a man just going about living his daily life at work Mm -hmm. and killing people or attempting to Mm -hmm. in a real, I don't know, kind of removed, random way. Like, there's none of the things you normally see in crimes like sort of the ritual or the obsession or like the perversion I don't know do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like it just it just seems odd it's like it's nothing to him you know he's just going around almost like for fun just seems like he's just doing it to sort of brighten up his day like oh yeah here's a patient let me just give them way too much insulin Mm -hmm. like when he knows the ramifications of what he's doing but yeah I don't know it's not very like drastic is it it's just him yeah, I don't know, looking for something to do and feel it's like he's, oh, I'm in a shit mood today, I hate the UK. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to, yeah, overdose a few patients. It's just really bizarre. And I think it's scary because we're so used to seeing people almost like get 
uh, like gratification or get something from their crime. Whereas in this mm. situation, he doesn't know who these saline bags are being yeah. administered to. He's not seeing the effects. He's not seeing them, you know. I might not even hear about it. Exactly, exactly. So I don't, maybe that's part of the game for him. I don't know. Maybe it's just knowing that you have control over all these people's lives. Yeah, like a roulette type thing. Exactly, exactly like a roulette. It's just, yeah, it's terrifying. I totally agree. I totally agree. And um, basically, when I started reviewing the sentencing notes from the court for this case, I was really blown away by how many people this crime affected. We heard earlier how this crime killed Arnold Lancaster, Tracy Arden and Derek Weaver, and how it affected the lives of Josephine Walsh, Grant Mazel, and Philip Jones, and of course, how it destroyed Rachel Langley's career and life. But these individuals were not the only victims. Beryl Hope was 70 years old when she was admitted to Stepping Hill on the 5th of July 2011. She was not very well at all. She had cancer of the oesophagus and her tumour had spread to her liver too. Because of the cancer, she was unable to eat or drink, hence her reason for going to Stepping Hill that day. The lady in the bed next to Beryl was a retired nurse and she noticed that Beryl's condition was not good and she felt that the nurse on the ward should have been more attentive. Therefore, she got out of her bed and walked to the nurse's station and asked the nurse on call, Victorina Chua, to come to the ward and help Beryl. This lady said that Chua absolutely erupted with rage, a reaction she had not expected at all. Chua walked back to the ward, and honestly, what happened next we don't really know. But what we do know is that Chua recorded on Beryl's chart that he had administered a saline bag at 3am. It was unclear to the court if Chua administered the insulin via the bag or whether he had injected it into her cannula, but Beryl's condition began to worsen by around 7am. Chua wrote on Beryl's medical chart at 7am and 7.10am that Beryl's condition was fine, but this was not true. She was found at 7.15 by another nurse to be unresponsive and sweaty and had an extremely high heart rate. Luckily, the nurse who found her instantly gave Beryl some glucose and slowly but surely, Beryl began to recover. Unfortunately, Beryl died several months later as a result of her cancer, but Chua was still charged with GBH despite Beryl's sad passing. John Beely was another patient who Chua poisoned. John had a string of medical issues that I won't go into here because I don't think it would be fair to, but he was admitted to Stepping Hill Hospital on the 27th of June 2011, having suffered several episodes of vomiting and shortness of breath at home. John had some learning difficulties, and due to these, he found it difficult to articulate how he was feeling, and instead was very loud and incoherent. This helped John, however, as when he was uncharacteristically quiet, one of the nurses noticed and went to check on him. The nurse found John unresponsive in bed, and after taking his blood and seeing that he was in a hyperglycemic episode with very low blood sugar, she gave him some glucose and he recovered. The nurse also noticed that he was hooked up to a saline bag. The court heard that this bag was not prescribed to John, and nowhere on his medical records did it say that he required it. Despite his recovery, poisoning such a poorly man with several different severe medical conditions was dangerous, and it resulted in John losing his zest for life. His family say that he has never been the same since. Mm. Linda McDonough was 59 when she was poisoned by Victorina Chua at Stepping Hill Hospital. Like the other patients, Linda was found in a semi-conscious state and was given some glucose and did recover. However, Linda was terminally ill and she needed ongoing hospital care. Despite this need for continued medical attention, she was reluctant to go back to hospital for medical treatment because she was terrified she would suffer another attack. When Linda died... Her funeral had to be postponed for a long time because the coroner had to undertake several autopsies to determine whether she had died as a result of Chua's poisoning. This was something that was devastating for her family. 66-year-old Joseph MacDonald was poisoned twice by Chua. Once by Chua himself when he washed out Joseph's cannula with insulin, and the second time the insulin was administered by an innocent nurse who hooked Joseph up to a saline bag the next day. Joseph suffered two hyperglycemic episodes induced by the insulin poisoning. Both times he fell ill, but both times he was given glucose to recover. Anthony Smith was 48 years old, and like the other patients, he suffered a random hyperglycemic episode and had very low blood sugar. He said the experience was terrible and awful, but the glucose he was given did improve his condition steadily. 81-year-old Joyce Arthurton was admitted to Stepping Hill on July 3rd as she was suffering with a chest infection. Sadly, Joyce was another patient who received two doses of insulin. Her first hyperglycemic episode was witnessed by her daughter, who said that Joyce became sweaty and clammy. 
She was given some glucose and recovered, but shortly after this, having been hooked up to another saline bag, Joyce became unwell again. Recognising the symptoms as the same as before, Joyce was given more glucose and she recovered again. Her daughter said, however, that her mood never really recovered after that hospital visit. Doreen Brace was also in her 80s and she was admitted to Stepping Hill because she was suffering from a UTI. Doreen's medical chart showed that she had been administered a litre of saline, but the doctor's signature next to this entry had been forged by Chewer. This bag of saline had a faulty drip and so it took several hours for Doreen to fall ill. So long, in fact, that by the time she suffered a hyperglycemic episode, she had been moved into a different ward with the saline bag still attached to her. As with the others, Doreen was given glucose and she did recover. 53-year-old Kathleen Murray went to Stepping Hill on the 7th of July with an ear infection. She was given antibiotics and a saline drip that Chua had contaminated with insulin. Kathleen was doing well and was about to be discharged when she became very unwell. A nurse gave her some glucose powder and a Mars bar and gave her another bag of saline, thinking this would help. Kathleen got a bit better, but as the next bag of contaminated saline entered her system, she fell ill again. She was again given glucose and recovered, but since the incident at the hospital, she has suffered ongoing stress-related anxieties. Lillian Baker and Beatrice Humphreys were 85 and 84 when they were admitted to Stepping Hill. Both suffered insulin poison and both undertook video interviews to be played at the trial. Beatrice couldn't remember a lot about that day in the hospital, but she remembers feeling really unwell. Lillian said that she was very scared as she'd had two attacks because her drip had taken so long to enter her system. By the time she'd recovered from her first hyperglycemic episode, the remainder of the saline had entered her system and she'd suffered another one, almost straight away. Similarly to Beatrice, 83-year-old Eileen Armstrong does not remember her attack in hospital either. She unfortunately suffered an epileptic fit during her hypoglycemic episode, although it's important to note that the epilepsy was not linked to the insulin poisoning. This fit meant that it took nurses longer to notice that she was suffering from a hypoglycemic episode. And like so many others, Eileen suffered two episodes as a result of two different saline bags. This experience caused her to become very nervous and anxious of hospitals and medical professionals, and she was constantly worried about going back into hospital in case she was attacked again. Mary Cartwright was another patient who was given insulin by Victorina Chua, and although she survived the attack, she died some weeks later. Chua's poisoning meant that Mary's family had to go through the anguish and pain of having to wait before they held a funeral for her, because the coroner had to undertake extensive tests and examinations to rule out whether she had died as a result of her hypoglycemic episode. Although the insulin did not seem to be a contributing factor in Mary's death, her family said that she was never the same again in the weeks following the attack before she sadly passed away. William Dixon, aged 82, was at Stepping Hill having suffered shortness of breath. Despite antibiotics and nebulizers, William's condition deteriorated and his wife was called to the hospital to be with him. By his side, she sat and spoke to him, and then, all of a sudden, William went completely blank behind the eyes and fell back onto his bed. William's wife ran to the nurse's station and asked for help, and instantly a nurse gave him glucose, aiding his recovery. If William's wife had not been there at that moment, William's condition may have gone unnoticed, and it's likely that he would not have survived. 86-year-old Daphne Harlow was taken to Stepping Hill by an ambulance after she fell at home and injured her knee. At the hospital, she was given some antibiotics and saline that put her into a hyperglycemic episode. Like so many of the other patients we've heard about, Daphne did recover, but her mind was never the same again. She became fearful of medical professionals and suffered from anxiety. Zubia Aslam was the youngest known victim of Victorina Chuo. She was just 24 years old when she was admitted to Stepping Hill on the 13th of July. She was prescribed a litre of saline solution to be released over an eight-hour period. By this time, nurses were aware that some ampules of saline had been contaminated, and so they checked the saline bag for any leaks before they hooked it up to Zubia. They noticed no leaks and no evidence that there was any other liquid in the saline bag, but despite this, she too suffered a hypoglycemic episode. She lost her vision and became sweaty and shaky. This was noticed by one of the nurses and she was given glucose quickly and she recovered. However, because these nurses had been so vigilant and couldn't understand why this had happened when they checked the bag, they preserved it. This bag was later tested and it showed that the bag had been injected by a hypodermic needle through the rubber septum in the resealable port. This meant that it was practically impossible to see with the naked eye where that bag had been pierced. 
An expert witness at the trial said that the amount of insulin found in the bag must have resulted from at least two full syringes of insulin. Because this bag had been set to release the fluid over an eight-hour period, the release of the insulin into Zubia's body for that length of time would have undoubtedly led to brain damage or death. So, obviously... They noticed because of the patient's reactions. Was no one noticing like an unusual depletion of insulin levels like in the medical stores? That's a really, really good question. And honestly, I don't know the answer to it, but I'm going to assume not because that hasn't come up in any of the court records or anything that I've looked into. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's a really, really good point. But no, not that I can tell. That wasn't looked into at all. So following all of this, further investigations were taken into the other medicine in the hospital and it found that there had been a single packet of glucose that had been injected with insulin. This was one packet out of 77 packets in that treatment room. But if that packet of contaminated glucose had been given to a patient suffering a hypoglycemic episode, they most certainly would have suffered irreversible brain damage or death. The number of patients affected by this series of attacks is devastating, and the court heard that it was likely that there were more victims out there who weren't identified in the investigation. So to me, I just find all of that just totally terrifying. They are different patients from different areas, different ages, different genders. There's no kind of rhyme or reason. There's no you know, like victimology. Do you know what I mean? He's mm. he's just, it's all happening at random. Um, and it's just terrifying that these people went in for totally innocent things, you know, like the poor lady who went in because she'd just fallen at home and hurt her knee. You go, you know, people go to hospitals all the time and it's just terrifying to think that they didn't even know kind of what they were walking into. No, yeah, like they're, they're vulnerable. People hate hospitals anyway, like you're scared. But the one thing, it's a phrase, isn't it? Like, oh, they, you know, at least they're in good hands. Like when mm. someone you love goes into hospital, that's what you say. Like, that's what makes us all not, you know, completely dread hospitals. As you think, like, you couldn't be in a better place. You know, you're you're there to to be made better, to be helped, to be healed. And I just think it's a really terrifying thought that something as innocent as a, you know, bag of saline it's, it's not like you say it's a very minor thing a lot of these people are there for very minor things and and I find it very upsetting as well the age of a lot of the victims yeah. because I'm not saying like it it'd be easier to get over if you're younger but just I know how traumatic it can be to go into hospital or, to have, or anything when you're older and yeah. you're elderly it takes a long time to get over doesn't it it's very yeah confusing and things and I just think I can't imagine the impact well we heard it like some of these people said they never felt the same again and mm -hmm. I just think how horrible you know for those relatives you you might only have like a few precious years left with like your grandparents and stuff and for them to be robbed of that you know some of them robbed of their lives but actually others just robbed of the person they were mm -hmm. before the attack I think it's just really really heartbreaking like you say just such a huge scale of impact and even for the you know the nurses and stuff yeah. like we touched on who inadvertently administered the contaminated drugs like they have to live with that as well yeah no i agree it's devastating it really is it's it's so scary and it's so so devastating there's so many different victims in this case mm, huge I'm now going to read directly from the judiciary document that outlines what was heard at the trial. Um, and this relates specifically to Victorino Chua's shift patterns and the attacks on patients um, that we just heard. And it kind of talks about the links between the patients and Chua and it's seriously damning. So the document states, there is a striking correlation between the defendant's working pattern and the incidence of hyperglycemic attacks suffered by the patients. Such a correlation cannot be explained by coincidence. The defendant's duty on A3 on the night of the 26th and 27th of June, followed by the hyperglycemic attacks on Josephine Walsh on the 27th and Linda McDonough in the early hours of the 29th. His duty on A1 on the night of the 27th and 28th of June, coinciding with the hyperglycemic attacks of John Beely in the early hours and the morning of the 27th, and followed by the hyperglycemic attacks of Joseph McDonald and Anthony Smith on the 29th. He then moved from A1, where the hyperglycemic attacks ceased, and moved back to A3. There were no hyperglycemic attacks for some days. He was on duty the 2nd and 3rd, 3rd and 4th, 4th and 5th, 6th and 7th of July, and he was off for a few days, and then back on A3 for the 8th and 9th, and 9th and 10th, coinciding with the hyperglycemic attacks of Joyce Arthurton later on the 3rd, and another one the following day, followed by the hyperglycemic attacks on Beryl Hope on the 6th, Doreen Brace on the 6th, and again on the 7th, Tracy Arden on the 7th, 
Kathleen Murray and Lillian Baker and Beatrice Humphreys on the 8th, Mary Cartwright on the 10th and again on the 11th, and Eileen Armstrong on the 10th and again on the 11th. All the while the incidents of hyperglycemic attacks had ceased on A1. He returned there on duty in A1 on the night of the 10th and 11th, which was accompanied by the attacks on Philip Jones, Derek Weaver, Arnold Lancaster, Grant Mazel, and later that morning by the attack of William Dixon. He returned to A3 on the 12th and 13th, followed by the hypoglycemic attacks on Daphne Harlow and Zubia Aslam on the 15th, following which the contaminated saline bag was found and further security systems were put in place. So as indicated there, it is firstly clear to see that the attacks marry up with the times that Chua was working on those wards. Mm. But secondly, it shows why the attacks stopped. And it's because the new improved security meant that medication was locked away and that the nurses had to work in pairs to sign up medication, kind of like we spoke about earlier. So it gave Chua no time alone, basically, to inject insulin into these saline bags and the other medication. And this is why the attack stopped for six months. And then, as we know, Chua changed his MO and started forging prescriptions and dosages. So 86-year-old Maria Paulazin was a victim to this when Victorina Chua forged a prescription for Bisoprolo, a medication that slows down the heart. This change in prescription was particularly dangerous because Maria had been admitted to the Stepping Hill Hospital because she had suffered a heart attack. Prior to changing Maria's prescription, Chua had also refused to attach her to a heart monitor, despite this being something vital that she needed given the fact that she'd just suffered a heart attack and obviously required monitoring. Maria's daughter Anna said that she cried tears of sheer frustration at the time because Chua was rude, angry and uncaring and refused to listen to her. It's amazing how independently of these investigations this man wasn't in some sort of disciplinary. Like, he sounds the opposite of what a caring, diligent nurse should be. Like, we've heard on a couple of occasions how rude he's been. I I can't imagine he's walking around the ward, you know, smiling and happy and forthcoming. You'd, You'd think he'd be attracting some sort of negative attention anyway. Yeah, from like a manager or something, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I definitely agree with you. And he he is a nasty, nasty character. And basically, he changed Maria's prescriptions for all the drugs that she was taking because he was just mad at her because they'd asked to be hooked up to a... um, They'd asked for Maria to be hooked up to a heart monitor. Yeah, it's horrible. So as I mentioned, he'd forged an entry on Maria's prescription for Bisoprolo. And as I mentioned, this drug slows down the heart and is something that is incredibly dangerous to give to a patient who has just had a heart attack. He also changed her other prescriptions for medication that lowers blood pressure. And he almost doubled both of those prescriptions. And she was also prescribed um, a drug to prevent strokes and heart attacks. And he doubled this dose from 90 milligrams to 180 milligrams. And if that had been administered, then she would have suffered internal bleeding. He literally altered every single one of her prescriptions and added additional medications to... It's like some kind of revenge. Exactly, just out of spite. Um, And any one of those dosages could have killed Maria or at the very least done some fairly irreversible damage. And Maria, unfortunately, was not the only person that Chua attacked in this way. On the same night that he altered Maria's prescription charts, he also amended the charts of 82-year-old Jean Moss, 79-year-old Audrey Fallows, 92-year-old Edith Hardman, 88-year-old Marion State, and 80-year-old Frieda Bingham. All these patients were elderly and vulnerable, and Chua likely targeted them because of that. Luckily for all these patients and Maria, none of the amended or forged prescription dosages were administered, but unfortunately this was not the case for 82-year-old Teresa Bailey. Teresa Bailey had been admitted to Stepping Hill with angina and Chua altered all the prescription on her medical chart. In a statement to the court, Teresa Bailey said that she felt that she had been given more pills than normal, but then when she questioned the nurse, she had been assured that the drugs were the right amount. It's important to note that that nurse was not Victorina Chua, but another innocent nurse working the day shift who was just following what she thought were the doctor's orders. Teresa Bailey suffered minor side effects, mainly fatigue and headaches, and fortunately, the high dosages of medication were only given to her once before a doctor noticed the error and amended the prescription chart. But if further high doses had been given to Teresa, it could have led to a heart attack or stroke. As we've kind of mentioned with the other patients, this incident really knocked Teresa's confidence, and her daughter said that she lived the rest of her life in fear of people. And I think as well, on a slightly different note, this really is a testament to all of the other nurses and doctors that worked in the hospital at the time, that there was not more fatalities given how many attempts he made. Absolutely. So, on the 19th of May 2015, four years after the initial insulin attacks, Victorino Chuo was sentenced. 
Firstly, Chua was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 35 years for the murders of Tracy Arden and Derek Weaver. The jury could not determine whether Arnold Lancaster's death had been as a result of the insulin poisoning or his advanced cancer, and so they acquitted the murder charge and instead found Chua guilty of attempting to cause Mr Weaver grievous bodily harm. For the charge of causing GBH with intent to grant Mizell, Chua was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 12 and a half years. For the 17 counts of intent to cause GBH to the 17 patients Chua poisoned with insulin, he received a life sentence with a minimum term of 10 years. For the four counts of attempting to cause GBH with intent in relation to the contaminated saline ampules and other contaminated medication, Chua was sentenced to life imprisonment, but the minimum term was set for eight years because there was no actual victims to these counts because the ampules had been discovered before they were given to any patients. For the six counts of attempting to administer poison in relation to the forged prescription charts, and for the one count of actually administering poisoning in the case of Teresa Bailey where the forged doses were given, Chua was sentenced to the maximum term available under the law, which was five years. Ultimately, however, this means that Chua's minimum sentence is 35 years because his sentences will all run concurrently. The judge in this case stated that he was anxious that he didn't want this sentencing to be misunderstood. He said the sentence is not just 35 years, the sentence is a sentence of imprisonment for life. He said that, quote, the defendant will serve at least 35 years. There is no early release from such a sentence. Even then, he will be released only if the parole board considers that he no longer presents a continuing risk to the public. And even if released, he will be subject to license for the rest of his life. Victorino Chuo was 49 at the time of his sentencing, so he'll be 84 by the time he can be even considered for release. Good. Following these attacks at Stepping Hill, changes have been made by the Nursing and Midwifery Council regarding how they check qualifications. The NMC now states that foreign nurses must undergo an online test and are now required to provide original documentation, not just scanned copies as Chua had provided. Anne Barnes, the chief exec of Stockport NHS Foundation Trust, apologised to the victims of Chua and their families, but stated that the hospital could not have been expected to stop him. She said, quote, our storage of saline and management of the prescription charts at the time of the incident was typical of those in other hospitals across the country. Whilst no hospital systems and processes can offer a complete guarantee against the actions of a determined criminal, additional measures are now in place which go beyond standard practice. She added, whilst Victorina Chewy's crimes are truly dreadful, we are sure patients will understand they have no bearing at all upon our care. I don't really know what you think about that. I agree to some extent. Uh, but I kind of have no doubt that this statement brought little comfort to the victims or their families and kind of future patients of the hospital as well. Yeah, I mean, I think, realistically speaking, she probably is right. They were standard practices at the time mm-hmm. and practices only ever evolve a lot of the time when a flaw is pointed out in them. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be a strange thing to implement unless you realise you did have a problem. Now, like we said earlier, with the benefit of hindsight, it seems crazy that there wouldn't be the kind of checks in place, like two people being there to sign stuff out. Or mm-hmm. I don't know, you just think actually there's a lot of power placed in at these individuals' hands. And yes, we like to think they're qualified healthcare professionals with our best interests at heart. Yeah. But you still also kind of think, okay, may- maybe there should be these extra checks and it probably is good that there now are. And I agree with you. I think like if I was being really logical about it, I would kind of think actually, no, this incident doesn't reflect the care you probably do give as a hospital but if I was the relative of a family member who was kind of suffering with like PTSD from what they'd been through Mm -hmm. then actually saying I'm sure patients understand isn't probably like a language I would like to hear yeah no I definitely agree I definitely definitely agree with that so yeah that is it that is this case um just devastating really isn't it probably could have Mm. picked a slightly less devastating one to end on but yeah I don't know if you have anything more you want to say no just like I say very far-reaching and awful awful kind of ripple effect Mm -hmm. for the ongoing things the victims suffer for their families for people's trust in healthcare um and also yeah just a a nod to all the nurses and doctors who actually saved so many people's lives yeah. by acting quickly, whether it be with glucose or double checking the prescription charts. I think it hopefully speaks that there's a lot more good professionals in the world than 
awful criminals. Absolutely. No, I really echo that. I really, really echo that. So many people, so many people were harmed in this case, but so many people were saved by brilliant, brilliant medical professionals. So yeah, definitely agree with that. So that's it, Sal. We're done. We're done for 2020. <laughs> oh, how weird. So yeah, we really want to take this opportunity to thank you all for your support this year in growing our podcast. Um, if you follow us on social media, you'll see that this year we were the 21st most popular UK true crime podcast on Spotify. And that honestly, it did. It blew our minds. Um, and we're so grateful to you for all your support. And a quick shout out uh, to all our other listeners in other countries. We do get notified when we hit the charts there. So we do know that, yeah, even everyone outside the UK, a big thank you for all of your support because we've made it into some countries charts that we never would have dreamed of this year. And it's just amazing to see like the reach that we've managed to get. And that wouldn't be possible without your listening and recommending. And yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, genuinely, thank you. Um, We do really, really appreciate it. But for now, yeah, we're leaving it here for 2020. We're going to go spend the next few weeks spending time with our families and friends kind of during this festive period. But we will be back in the new year with even more true crime content for you. Thanks again for all you've done for us. We wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you all listening. So please do keep recommending us to people you think might like to hear our content as it is you guys really that makes this podcast grow. So thank you. Um, If you're going to miss hearing our voices, then you can sign up to our Patreon. In the new year, we're going to start doing some different content over there. But for now, there's a backlog of wind down episodes that you can listen to. Um, But other than that, have a wonderful festive period and we'll see you in 2021. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.